All right, well, good morning. How are you? Uh, hey, I just got to share something because I'm excited about this today. Uh, my wife has been gone and been out of town this weekend, and I made it to church. And I got three out of the five kids to church today. That's 60%. Um, one of them was sick, so the other one had to stay home and watch him. That's why there's only three out of the five. But uh, it is good to be here with you at Restoration Church. My name is Pastor Kevin. If I have, if I have not had the chance to uh, connect with you this morning, I hope I get the opportunity um, today. Um, thank you for being here. We're, we're excited to be able to worship with you. Um, speaking about this idea of my wife being gone, um, if you have kids, I don't know if you ever noticed how there's different ways to clean your room. All right? Kids, there's different, there, there's, there's dad style. And so yesterday I told the kids, hey, go clean your room. And so the kids go in and they're cleaning the room when dad is home is nothing on the floor. So that means you can shove it in the closet. You can shove it under the bed. You can, you know, but mom's style looks different. When mom's in town, when mom's home and, and she tells the kids to clean the room, they're like, mom's style? And mom's like, of course. Now, mom's style means that there's nothing under your bed means your closet is clean, means the clothes that you put away have to be like actually folded and can't just be thrown in. It means for our boys, there can be no stinkiness in your bedroom. There's a difference between dad style and mom style when you clean your room. One of them requires a minimum amount of effort. The other one goes above and beyond and does like a real job at cleaning your room. Ever notice how there's different things you can do with the minimum amount of work possible? Like, like, like at school, you can do like the minimum amount of work possible, right? Like some of you are like me and you're like, yeah, I did the minimum amount of work possible. I got a D and that's the passing grade. So there we go. Like some of you were there. But how does this idea about trying to do the minimum amount of work possible, how does it really work in, in, in real life? You know, I'm thinking about you married couples in here today. You know, like, like you men. Is it, does it work for you to give your wife the minimum amount of love possible? Does that work in marriage? If it does for you, I don't know what's going on in your marriage, but I'm going to guess, like husbands, it's a bad idea for you to try and figure out what's the least amount of love I need to show my wife. That's just not a good marriage uh, uh, plan. What about this? What about in work? Uh, in your workplace, does it work for you to give the, the minimum amount of work possible? In fact, I remember when I was in high school, I had uh, these little buddies that we used to spend all of our, our, our time with. And uh, we got hired for a week by, by uh, a guy who was building duplexes. And he said, hey, you kids, uh, you know my daughter. Hey, would you guys come and for a week, would you do landscaping? I'm going to build all these duplexes. And I'm looking for some, you know, teenage boys to come do the landscaping for me. And, and so me and my buddies got there and and, and we figured, okay, well, what's the least amount of work we could do on this duplex? And so we, we, we worked on the duplex, did the least amount of work possible. And he never called us back. Imagine that. Like, we got our week, but we could have had the whole summer if we would have worked hard. But we had this idea that we can just do the minimum amount of work possible. Let's be honest, though. How many of us ever have viewed our faith in that same way? You start thinking about your faith, start thinking about church, start, start thinking about God, like, like, what is the, the minimum amount that God requires of me? You know, like, like maybe, maybe when the offering comes by, you know, God, what is the minimum amount you expect me to put in the offering? God, what is the least amount of Sundays you actually want me to go to church on the weekend? Like, like help me understand what's the least amount that God requires of me? 
If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of uh, Luke, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can slip your hand up. Um, We've got a Bible in the back. We'd love to come and bring one. You can pull up on your phone as well through the Bible app. Uh, There's a story in Luke chapter 10 about a guy who is kind of going that same way, trying to say, okay, God, what is the least amount that you are going to require of me? He wants to figure that out. And this is a continuation. We've started a series last week that we're calling The Art of Neighboring. And this is an opportunity for us as a church to kind of dig into this idea that when, when a guy came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second commandment, tied to the first, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to dig in as to what it looks like for us to, to love our neighbor as ourself. In fact, kind of the key idea for this whole series we, we summarized last week was that there can be no separation between our love for God and our love for people. You can't divorce those two things. They belong together. Uh, We said that loving our neighbor becomes a visible proof for our love for God. So if you want to know if somebody loves God, look at how they treat their neighbor. And so today... Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. And this is a story that many of us have heard before. This is a story of, of the Good Samaritan. And this is really a, a great story for us to look into because this story is going to answer two very important questions for us. When we talk about the art of neighboring, this story is going to give us the answer to, to first the question of who is my neighbor? And the second question this story is going to answer is how do I love my neighbor? What does it look like for me to love my neighbor as myself? And so these are the two questions we're going to have answered in this, this, this story today. And uh, before we jump in, I'm just going to ask you to to, to pray with me for just a moment. God, I just want to thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace on us. Thank you for um, the chance to be together with your people today. And uh, God, we are coming in today. And, and, and God, you've known what our last week looked like. You know what's weighing in our heart today. Uh, but God, I just pray that you just meet with us here today. That God, you would give us what we need to hear. That you'd challenge us in areas we need to be challenged. And God, I pray specifically that you help us to understand what it looks like for us to love the people around us, that we would be obedient to what you've called us to, and that's to love our neighbors as ourselves. God, I pray that you would uh, just speak to us and draw us here today. God, we love you and praise you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Luke chapter 10, you can follow along in your phone or in your Bible. We also have the words on the screen behind me. Verse 25 starts out. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Like, I, I kind of like the way these guys are thinking. Like, last week, we had one of the, uh, one of the uh, scribes comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, out of all the commandments, out of all the commandments, what's the most important? Like, give it to me straight, Jesus. Help me understand. And now you've got one of the lawyers comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, just very simply tell me, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? These are kind of the questions I would want to know. Like, help me understand. Break it down, Jesus. And so Jesus responds and says, in verse 26, What is written in the law? How do you read it? I mean, he asks the lawyer. This guy's a lawyer. The lawyer should know what the law says. And so the, the, the lawyer says in verse 27, uh, the, the law says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And that you should love your neighbor as yourself. 
This is interesting because this is the same exact thing from uh, Mark chapter 12 that we looked at last week when the religious guy came up to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? So this lawyer is quoting the same exact thing that Jesus said from last week. And so Jesus responds and says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus says, you've got the right information. You've got the right knowledge. Love God and love people. That's the most important thing. That's how you inherit eternal life. That's what you need to do. Now you just need to go and do it. You've got the information. Now go and do it. But this is where it gets interesting. In verse 29, it says, The lawyer, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? That's a good question. Like when we understand that Jesus just said we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, like that's a good question for us to ask. Who is my neighbor? But the problem is, the way that this lawyer is asking this question, it said that he's trying to justify himself. He's not really curious about who his neighbor is. He kind of wants to know this minimalist idea. Like, okay, Jesus, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, tell me who it is specifically that I'm supposed to love. Like, like is it, is it uh, my family? Is it the people I like? Is it fellow Israelites? Who exactly am I supposed to, to love? Maybe a more realistic way for us to reinterpret that question is this guy is saying, okay, Jesus, well, who do I not have to love? Like, help me understand what's the minimum amount of love I have to do and help me understand who are the people I don't have to worry about at all so I can just cross them off my list. Let me ask you, when you hear this idea, who is your neighbor, how would you answer that question? How would you say who your neighbor is? You might say, well, you know, it's, it's the person right next to me. You might say, well, it's, it's, it's people I like. It's people I care for. You might say it's, it's people in my same socioeconomic uh, background. You might say people of my same ethnicity. Uh, you might say people of my same political persuasion. These are my neighbors. These are the people I like. These are the people I care for. So these are the people that I'm going to go and love in the name of Jesus. And as Christians, we like to come up with our own definition for how to answer these questions. And we want to, we wanna, basically what we want to do is we want to rationalize. Where Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we want to say, okay, well, I get to define who my neighbor is. People I like, people that look like me, people that like me in return. But here, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you and I, we don't get to decide who our neighbor is. We don't, give to, we don't get to define who a neighbor really is. Because what Jesus is about to do is he's about to drop a nuclear bomb on the whole entire scene. So that lawyer and all those people around listening to the conversation, Jesus is going to say something that's going to blow up the idea that the lawyer would have, that he can define who his neighbor is. And in return, I think it blows up the idea that you and I get to define who our neighbors are as well. So Jesus is going to tell a story. And here's how the story goes. It says, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Okay, in that one verse, there's a lot of information we need to understand. It says there was a guy who's probably a Jewish guy, and he's traveling on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now, this, this road was a, was a treacherous road. It's about a 17-mile long road that leads from Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea. And there are these large mountains uh, and hills on either side of the road. In fact, in Jesus' day, this road was known as being a very dangerous road. 
Because what would happen is you would have robbers and they would hide in the mountains. They'd hide in the cracks of the rock. And when somebody came traveling by, they would jump out. They would beat the person. They would strip them naked. They would steal everything they had. They would leave them for dead and then jump back in the mountain to hide and, and, and get away. And this is, this is what the, the, the road was known for. It was known as being this, this dangerous road. They called, it, uh, they called this road, correct me if I'm wrong, um, the, the blood road, the road of blood, because that's what it was known for in that day. And so that's exactly what happens. This guy in Jesus' story is walking along. He gets beaten. He gets stripped naked. He gets everything taken from him, and he's left for dead. And it's important that we recognize he was left for dead. Because what that means is he was, he was literally about to die. And what's going to happen next is Jesus is going to paint a picture for us of what it looks like for us to say we love God, but not demonstrate that love to the people around us. He's going to paint that picture. And so here's what he does. Verse 31. Jesus says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw the, the guy dying, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So again, here's our scene. We've got this treacherous Difficult road. We've got this man lying on the ground, bleeding, dying, stripped naked, and a priest approaches. Now the priest, this was the guy who was in charge of putting together religious services in the temple. Okay, he would have been the pastor of that day. And the priest comes along, and then comes along a Levite. Now a Levite was like a, like a JV priest. He, he wasn't varsity, but he would go and he would help the priest put on religious services. Okay, so this is like, this is like, Kevin and Jason, like we're coming along the road. We probably just left church. We probably just got done doing a worship service. And here we are coming along the road. Now, if you put yourself in that audience that Jesus is talking to, okay? Put yourself in the audience. You think about this guy laying on the road. Like this must be his lucky day to think about this is the, the priest and the Levite, the religious people. If anybody would have known that not, they're not just supposed to claim to love God, but they're supposed to love their neighbor, it would have been these two guys. Like these are the guys that are probably the most closest to God. Of course they know they're supposed to stop and love this guy and, and help this guy out, right? But that's not what happens. It says, now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, the guy laying bleeding to death, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Neither one of those guys stopped to engage the man dying on the road. Now, I don't, this is part of, of, of just what we want to encourage you. And as you're reading the Bible, you should come to spots like this. And there should be a little question that pops up in your mind. And it's good for us to question. It's good for me, as I'm reading this, my question is, well, Why? Like, why, why didn't those two guys stop and help the guy dying? Undoubtedly, how come these two guys who, who claim to love God, why do they pass by on the other side? Why do these two guys who would take the Bible and would tell people, the Bible says you're supposed to love God and love your neighbor. Like, they can teach that to people. Why would they then pass by this guy dying on the side of the road? Why would these guys have a knowledge of what it means to love 
their neighbor? Why would, why would they have a knowledge that far exceeds their obedience to actually living it out on how we're supposed to love our neighbor? That's my question. Why? And we're not directly told uh, the reasons why in this passage, but I think when you're looking around and trying to dig in, you can kind of come up with some ras- rationalizations, some, some, some reasons why they wouldn't want to stop and help this guy. The first reason I think you can say as to why they wouldn't want to stop is probably because fear set over them. I mean, the priest and the Levite, they knew the road. They knew it was dangerous. They knew there's robbers probably. The robbers that probably beat this guy are probably still in the rocks waiting for somebody else to come by. And if they stop and help this guy out, what's to stop those robbers from coming and doing the same thing to them? So there's a good chance I could imagine that fear would have stopped them from loving this guy on the road. Fear would have stopped them from fulfilling the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Let me ask this. Have you ever been a spot in your life where you failed to love somebody because of fear? Have you ever been in a spot in your life where you had the opportunity to love somebody else, but you stopped because of fear? Now, I'll be honest just a little bit about myself. I'm typically an outgoing person. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a welcoming personality. I don't have a problem engaging with people. But one of, the, one of the quirks that I've seen begin to show up in my life uh, several times now, time and time again, is I kind of have this people-pleasing um, tendency where I want people to like me. I want to engage in people. I want them to, to like me and to appreciate me. And, and this becomes a problem for me because when I come into a new setting, I meet somebody new. And maybe, maybe they're, um, they've got a little more education than I do. Maybe they've got more success. Maybe they're older and wiser. Sometimes there's this fear that begins to set over me where I, where I uh, become intimidated by them. And, and I'm afraid to engage them because I think, well, what if, what if they aren't uh, appreciative of me? What if they don't value me? And I become to have this, this, this fear that comes over me and causes me to not want to engage with other people. Now, maybe, maybe you're in here today. Maybe you're an introvert. Maybe you've got some social anxiety. And maybe you've learned what I have learned as well. That sometimes your cell phone, your iPhone can become your best friend. Because you're in that setting with people who maybe are in, you're intimidated by. And instead of engaging with them, this is what we do. We get on our phones and pew, 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 pew. Start sending text messages to people. And this is what I do when I'm in that setting and I get anxious and I get nervous and I feel intimidated and I have that fear comes over me. Instead of pushing through and saying, hey, I'm going to engage with this person, I just get on my phone and start texting. Chances are, if you see me texting, I, I may really be texting. I may be just trying to avoid a conversation with you. I'm just saying that's where I've been. Can we just ask you honestly? Have you ever failed to love somebody because of fear? As you're looking around the people that God has placed around you, that person uh, on your block, that person on your street, that, that, that person in your office, and you've seen the way they live, you've seen the issues in their life, and you have no doubt that that person would benefit greatly from your friendship, would benefit greatly from the love of Christ. But fear comes over you. You begin to think, man, what... What, what, what are they going to say? What are they going to think about me? Like, what if, you know, they're so different than me. They, they aren't going to want to hear what I have to say. And so you don't engage because fear overcomes you. 
Maybe you can think about, have you ever stopped reaching out to a friend? you ever stopped reaching out to a family member that's in sin? Because you're afraid. What if I lose that friendship? What if, what if they start thinking, thinking things about me that I don't think are appreciative? Have you ever been in a situation where you've allowed fear to stop you from engaging people around you? Another reason, possibly, another rationalization for why the priest and the Levite didn't engage this guy dying in the road uh, would be inconvenience. I think also tied into that would be uh, the personal cost. I mean, when you think about this story, the religious law of that day says if you came within six feet of a dead person, or if you touched them, that you would be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Okay? And what that would mean is that you would have to go to Jerusalem and begin the rites of purification. So this included, you'd have to go and you'd have to purchase a red heifer. And you'd have to offer that as a sacrifice to God. And then you'd be sent to the, the eastern gate where you have to be there for seven days. And, on the, and you have to be with the other people who are, are, are sinners. Okay? And what would happen is on the third day, you'd have to purify yourself with water. And then on the seventh day, you'd have to purify yourself again with water. And then you'd have to wait for the priest to come and sign off and say, okay, this guy is now ceremonially clean again. Okay? This is what would have to happen. And if you put yourself in the shoes of the priest or the Levite, okay, because I can just picture that. I put myself in their shoes and I begin to think, okay, okay. If this guy is dead, or if he dies on my watch, what effect will that have on my life? What effect will that have on my schedule? What effect will that have on my resources, on my finances? I mean, these guys probably, they left church, probably headed home. And men, we know what it's like when you're headed home and your wife's got dinner on the table. She expects you to come straight home, right? So, I mean, yeah, amen, there we go. And so you can imagine these guys are looking at this guy on the side of the road and saying, man, if I stop, my wife's going to be texting me saying, where are you? Why aren't you home? What are you doing? I mean, if they have to go to the Eastern Gate for seven days, that means they can't attend religious services. They can't, they can't go to church and put on the services for the other people. I mean, if they, if they have to go to the Eastern Gate for seven days, then they've got a family to provide for. You know, if they can't work for seven days, that's seven days without pay. And they've got a family to provide for. They've got kids. They've got kids they're supposed to love. They've got kids. Hey, we've got to take our kids to their soccer practice. And they've got a soccer game. I've got to go and watch my kids play soccer. And, and then they're looking and saying, well, The Voice is all new. And I've got to go home and watch The Voice because I don't want to miss any episodes of The Voice. All these reasons. They're looking and saying, man, if I stop, If I stop right now to fulfill the second greatest commandment, what about all these other things I'm not going to be able to do? All these other commandments that are good for me to do. If I stop and engage this man right here, there's a tremendous inconvenience and personal cost to myself. Again, does this sound familiar to any of us in here today? That like the priest and like the Levite, you and I might see a need before us, We might even feel bad about the need and and wish we could do something about it. But before we engage in that need, the first thing we do is we begin to weigh the cost for ourselves. How is this going to affect my schedule? How is this going to affect my finances? What is it going to cost me? And like the priest, like the Levite, 
So many times we see that need in front of us and we feel bad about it, but we tend to walk on the other side because it's just inconvenient. Because it just is going to cost too much of ourselves. I mean, can we just, as a church, can we just be honest that this is a hard thing? That many of us would find ourselves in that spot where we have allowed all sorts of reasons and all sorts of rationalizations for why we don't engage people the way that God has called us to. And I'll be the first to confess it. I'll be the first to confess it. In fact, something happened last week. Now, my Sunday mornings, they typically look like uh, this. I usually get up about 6 a.m. because I got to get ready to preach. And so that's what I do on Sunday morning. I, I go through my me- message. Uh, last Sunday, I got up at 6 a.m. I went through my message. I made some notes. I did some of this or that. I drove down to church. I grabbed coffee on the way. Um, straight into the setup and teardown process, trying to get everything ready for church. Church started. I had the opportunity to preach. We did get done with church. And then we got the teardown process. And it's about 12.30, 12.45. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm tired. I haven't eaten anything. The only thing I can think about doing is going home, eating lunch, and taking a nap. That's what Sundays look like for me. I get done with church. I go home. I eat lunch. I take a nap. Okay? So it's 12.45. And a guy walks in the front door. A guy walks in. His name is Marty. Uh, I've had a past relationship with Marty. I've done some things for him in the past. And Marty comes in and says, hey, pastor. Hey, pastor, I really need some groceries. Uh, my wife and I, you know, we don't have any help coming until the end of the week. And we have nothing. Pastor, can you just give us a little bit of help? And I'm sitting here thinking, Marty, I have nothing on me right now. I've got some stuff at the office, but if I go to the office, then I don't have to go and unlock everything and, and find where it's at. And, and, uh, and I'm just thinking, Marty, I don't really want to. I just want to go home and eat lunch and take a nap. So I thought, well, well, Marty, actually, I know Jason's going to the office. So Marty, here's what I'm going to do. The office is that way. You just walk this way till you find it, Marty. You'll find the office. You've been there for just walk that way to find the office. And I text Jason. Hey, Jason, Marty's coming to the office. You need to go and, and give him uh, some help. Well, Jason's phone was on silent. So Jason, I get ready to leave. I'm carrying stuff out to my car. I see Jason coming by. I'm like, hey, did, did you see Martin? He's like, no, I didn't. And this wave of guilt came over me. Like, here's this guy in need. And listen, I know what I was preaching on today. I know I was preaching on this idea, on this is what it looks like for you and I to love our neighbor. This wave of guilt came over me. Because here's this guy in need. Here's an opportunity that God put in front of me. And because I was tired, because I was hungry, I tried to pass the buck and rationalize. Somebody else would take care of it. So I got in my car. I drove up and down. I'm looking all over for Marty, and I couldn't find him. Can we just be honest about this is a hard thing for us to do? That many of us find ourselves in that situation where we can make all, sort of, all sorts of reasons as to why, hey, I would really love to help you in this moment, but I just, I can't because it's inconvenient. I can't because there's a personal cost to me. In fact, I don't know about you. I've been in church for, you know, 15 years now. Maybe you've been in church for a long time. And maybe every time you hear this story, at least for me, I hear this story and I hear about the priest and I hear about the Levite and I think, well, well what's wrong with them? Like, like, this is what Christians do. Christians love their neighbors. Those guys, what's wrong with them? Well, what I found is the longer that I'm a Christian, the more I find myself to be like them. Where the priest and Levite are a lot like me. Where I know what it means to love my neighbor. But I have all sorts of reasons, whether it be fear or inconvenience, or I'm too busy, or I I don't want to deal with a personal cost. 
where I see the need and I pass by on the other side. And Jesus says, hey guys, this is what it looks like for us to claim we love Jesus, but to fail to demonstrate that by loving the people around us. But he's going to show us what it actually does look like. So it says in verse 31, Now the priest, by chance the priest, was going down by the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. And here's where it's going to get scandalous, okay? Because he says, verse 33, A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Do you know who the Samaritan is? Samaritans were, uh, uh, this is crucial for us to understand, Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Okay? Samaritans were people where when Israel was taken captive years before, the, the Israelites, they married some of their captors. Okay? They married the enemy, and they had kids with them. And so their kids were, were half Jewish blood and half Samaritan blood. And the Jews despised them because of this. They considered them to be half-breed, second-class citizens. In fact, there were actually prayers in the synagogues that were prayed, uh, and they were in church. And this is what they would pray. They'd say, God, God, would you forgive us? God, would you have mercy on us? But that one over there, that Samaritan, God, do not dare forgive them. Do not dare give them mercy or forgiveness. There is a very strong hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. So here's the Samaritan walking by. He sees the, the Jewish man dying on the road. If anybody would have been justified to pass by, it would have been the Samaritan. He had every reason not to engage this guy and to give him help. But in this, Jesus answers us this idea about who is our neighbor. Remember the lawyer, he wanted this clean idea. Your neighbor is this guy. Your neighbor is that guy. Your neighbor is the person that lives right next to you. But Jesus does not give an easy answer. Because what he's telling us is your neighbor is anybody that God lays in your path who's in need. Anybody in need of mercy, anybody in need of compassion, regardless, regardless of their ethnic background, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of whether or not they like you or not. Anybody that God lays in your path that is in need, that is your neighbor. This is an important definition for us to understand because... Undoubtedly, there's some folks in our church where you live, you just don't have people that live right next to you. But every one of us has people in our lives that God has placed there and they're, they're in need. And Jesus is telling us that is our neighbor. So we're thinking about what that means. The homeless guy on the street corner, that you know is there because he wastes all of his resources on, on things he shouldn't do. That guy is our neighbor. The boss who you cannot stand because of the way that they treat you, that guy is your neighbor. That person that has a completely different political view than you do, the person who, who is uh, pro-choice and supports abortion, listen, that person is your neighbor. That family member who disrespects you, they're your neighbor. That person in your life where maybe they're not all that messed up, but you just don't like them. Listen, that is your neighbor. See, Jesus is completely broadening the idea of who our neighbor is. 
by saying, you and I, we don't get to choose who our neighbor is. God has already decided who our neighbor is. And he gave us this overwhelming example of anybody who is in need that God lays in our path. That is our neighbor. And listen, I don't know about you, but when I hear this, I want to rationalize. I want to rationalize. So, no, Jesus, no, God, no. That homeless guy in the street corner, he's there because he made bad decisions. I don't have to help him. No, 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 God, God. That family member, you don't know what they've said about me. You don't know how they've treated me. God, my ex-spouse, don't get me started on them. The things that they have done, God, you can't be serious. You want me to love them. We begin to rationalize all these ideas. I can't love them, God. You wouldn't want me to love them. They're horrible people. And this is what scares me. Because remember, remember the key to this entire series. We said the key is that there can be no separation between our love for God and our love for people. That how we love our neighbor shows is visible proof of our love for God. So when we start looking at who our neighbor is, the question is, do we really love God? Does our life, does our love show whether or not we truly love God? That's deep, and that's hard. And, I, and I'm sitting up here, and I'm, I, again, I'm going to rationalize and say, okay, well, Jesus, you said I'm supposed to love my neighbor? Fine, I'll love my neighbor, but I get it, I'll determine what love looks like. Like sometimes love, the best kind of love is a big kick in the pants, right? Like I got a big, I got a big uh, size nine foot for you. Here, how do you like this? But that doesn't work. Because next, Jesus is going to define what it looks like for us to love our neighbor. He says in verse 33, he says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, listen, here's the key. He had compassion. You need to underline those words in your Bible. You need to circle them. You need to uh, put blinking lights all around them. This is so significant. Because in those three words, Jesus tells us exactly what it looks like for us to love our neighbor. And that's with compassion. This is much more than us just being nice to the next door neighbor. This is much more than us baking cookies for the new family on on the street. This is much more than you and I inviting somebody to church. All those things are a part of it. But the biblical definition for loving our neighbor is found in those words. He had compassion. Compassion. Compassion means that we we don't just see a need. We don't just see a need and feel bad about it. And maybe even have some empathy where you can put yourself in those shoes and say, man, I really feel for you. I'm I'm sorry. No, compassion means that you see the need and you do something about it. In fact, probably the greatest way to define uh, compassion, Jude 22 out of the old King James says, and uh, compassion, uh, some have compassion making a difference. When you have compassion on somebody, You see the need, and you actually go and do something about it. In fact, this idea, this term, he had compassion. You see this exact term four other times in the New Testament, in the original Greek. Okay? The first time you see it is in Matthew chapter 14, the feeding of the 5,000. 
Jesus is there and he sees the crowd and he says they're like a sheep without a shepherd and they're hungry. And it says that Jesus had compassion on them. And what did he do? He went and multiplied the fish and the bread to feed all of those people that were there that day. The second time you see this same phrase, he had compassion, is in Mark chapter 6. Jesus has been out preaching and teaching and, and healing people, and he's tired from ministry. He's weary. So he goes up into the mountain to get a little bit of alone time between him and God, just to be able to, to pray with God. And as he comes down off that mountain after that time of prayer, after that time alone, he sees the crowds. And the crowds are there. There's all these people that are sick with all sorts of diseases. And it says again that he had compassion. And he went down and he healed their diseases. He healed their sick. Third time you see the same phrase, he had compassion. Luke chapter 7. Jesus tells a story about a widow who had one son. Okay, so she's already lost her husband. And what happens is the son dies as well. And Jesus comes on the scene and the lady is just weeping. And he realizes, man, she has lost everything. She is all alone in the world. And it says, Jesus had compassion. He had compassion. And he walks up to the boy's casket and he touches the casket. And I love it because the Bible says that the boy sat up and began talking at that very moment. And Jesus takes a boy and brings her to the mom. See, he saw the need. He didn't just feel bad about it. He didn't just feel sorry for the woman. He did something about it. Listen, the fourth time that we see this same phrase, he had compassion. The story that many of us know, Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. A well-known story. Cade walks up to his dad and basically says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want you just to give me my inheritance now. So the dad says, fine. Takes half of everything he owns, half of his wealth, gives it to the son. And we know the story. The son goes off to a far-off city, and he, he uh, uh, squanders all of that wealth through reckless living. He goes and has, has this, this tremendous party, invites everybody. Party lasts for a long time, and he uses all of his resources in, in, in reckless living. He loses it all. And then a famine comes on the land. And the boy doesn't have any money, doesn't have any food. So he says, you know, I'm going to go get a job. And he gets a job by a farmer. And his job is to feed the pigs. And he's in the pig pen. He's feeding the pigs the slops. And he's looking and saying, man, I'm so hungry. He starts eating some of the slop. And I love it because the Bible says that he came to his senses. He came to his senses and recognized, you know what? My dad's servants, his hired hands, they eat better than I do. He says, Here, here's, here's what I'm going what I'm to do. I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm going to give him a speech. Say, God, dad, I don't deserve to be called a son. But dad, would you, would you hire me as one of your servants? Would you allow me to be one of your servants? He makes this plan and he gets up and he starts heading home to his dad's house. And remember the story. The dad, when he sees his son from afar off, remember what the dad said? He said, oh, my son, he's wasted his life. He has gone and wasted his life. I'm going to go back inside. Let him, let, let him do his own thing. No, no, no. That, that's not what the story says. The story says that when his father saw him from afar off, he had, can you guess the word? Compassion. 
He had compassion on him. He rolled up his robes and he made a dead sprint out to meet his son. He meets his son afar off. He takes his robe off. He puts his royal robe on his son. He takes his royal ring. He takes his ring off and puts it on his son. And he kisses his son and says, my son was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. And they go back and they kill the fatted calf and they throw a big party for the son. See, what's amazing about this is the exact same phrase that led the father to welcome his wayward son. It describes the actions of the Samaritan towards his mortal enemy dying on the ground. And that same phrase that describes how that father felt towards his son is the same phrase that Jesus said is supposed to to describe how you and I love our neighbors. We are to love them like that. It says in the text, it says he had compassion and he went to him and he bound up his wounds. He wasn't worried about the robbers. He wasn't worried about a schedule. He wasn't worried about the inconvenience. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. See, is it hitting you, the, the, the weight and the depth that Jesus says for you and I to not only claim to love God, but to actually love our neighbor as ourself, to love the people around us? Are you grasping just how big that is? I've got a sister-in-law and brother-in-law live in Boise, Idaho. Some of you have met them, Keith and Christiana. They've been here. Uh, their church supports our church. Um, good people. Keith and Christiana, they've got six kids. They've got three kids that they uh, had naturally, and they've adopted three kids from Ethiopia. And one of the things that's been really cool to see about their story is they've been able to take their kids back to their villages where they came from uh, in, in Africa and be able to see the story of where they came from and what God has done in that. And so uh, about two, two and a half years ago, they, uh, they adopted a, a refugee boy from Ethiopia. And they, they started having this conversation, hey, what would it look like for us to go back to your refugee camp? To be able to see where you came from. Understand more of your story. Understand uh, some of the circumstances and some of the hardships that you've endured. They, they talked about this for a while. And this past August, many of you know, uh, this young man lost his life. And he died. But because of that love that Keith and Christiana had for their son, they kept thinking back about this idea about this refugee camp. So Keith and Christiana, last, this past December, right after Christmas, they decided at a great cost to themselves, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to fly over to Africa. We're going we're gonna to arrange to have a guide take us to the refugee camp. We're going to have them take us there. We're going to figure out how to get there. And to get to this refugee camp, wanted to go in and, and hear about his story, hear about the hardships he endured. And the refugee camp said, nope, we're not going to let you in. You're Americans. We're afraid you're going to Uh, make a mockery of this. We're afraid you're going to exploit this. So they came all this way. They sacrificed all these resources to be told, no, we're not letting you in. They stayed for two other days, waiting and and asking and asking. And finally, on the third day, the refugee camp allowed Keith and Cassandra into the refugee camp. They brought all sorts of gifts to to give to these refugees and shirts and, 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 and pencils and all sorts of wonderful things like this. 
And they were able to, to, to meet some of the people that their son Maji had grown up with. To hear some of the hardships that Maji endured that led to some of the hardships he faced in America. They were able to meet his friends. To see where he lived. They experienced closure. What's great about this story. Man, there is a love that motivated them to, to make this trip. To sacrifice their time. To sacrifice their resources to go and do this. Say, well, well, why are you telling me this story? Of course, of, of course, a parent would do that for the child. Of course, you know, if you have a son and a daughter, of course you want to go and figure out their stuff. Of course you would do that. You love them. But listen, the way that Keith and Christiana loved their son, that is how God calls us to love the people that he's placed in our life. That is how God has called us to love the people in need that he places in our life. That we are to love people, even people who hate us like this. We're to love people who hate us like like, like the father loves a wayward son. Like the Samaritan loves a dying man. Is this the kind of love that our lives are characterized by? This is a hard thing for us to hear. This is a difficult thing. And I want to clarify, like we've taken this hard stand today on compassion. On this is what it looks like for us to love our neighbor. And I know some of you are saying, well, well the Bible also talks about having wisdom. The Bible talks about, about uh, being responsible with our time and being responsible with our resources. And I will say, absolutely. There is times that we need to be responsible. But listen, I think, I think most of us, in evangelical Christianity in America, we don't struggle with compassion. Or we, we don't struggle with, with having wisdom and being wise with our resources. We struggle with compassion. I would say that most of us find it easy to come up with rationalizations about why we shouldn't engage the hurting people around us. I would say probably the bigger need for us is to just have grace and compassion and love people where they are. Remember last week, they will, we will be known by our love. That is what we're called to be known by, by our love. And this is what Jesus is saying. Hey, listen, to love God means you love your neighbor. And this is how you do it. You see the people in need around you and you have compassion and you make a difference. You wade into their story. You meet them where they are. You love them where they are. And you do what you can to make their life a little bit better. The story concludes. Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer responded and said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to them, you go and do likewise. See, as we talk about this idea about you and I loving our neighbor... This story answers two very important questions for us. Number one, who is our neighbor? I want us to be clear. Our neighbor is anyone that God places in our life in need. That is your neighbor. Those are the people we are supposed to love and engage. And secondly, this story asks, answers the question, how do we love them? What does it look like for us to fulfill the second greatest commandment? And Jesus tells us it looks like this. It means we have compassion on them. 
That we don't just see the need, we don't just feel bad, we don't walk by, but we see the need and we engage and we do something about it. Listen, I'm standing up here and saying, this is, <laughs> this is tough. And I want to be clear. When we understand the way that God has loved us, See, there's a reason why this scripture says to, to love God first and then love people second. Because the only way for us, the only way possible for us to love people is for us to love God and for God to begin to change our hearts. Because when we come, we surrender ourselves before God and we receive his love, he begins to change us from the inside out. That frees us and enables us to begin to love people and see people the way that he sees them. Listen, are there people in your life like this? People who you need to have compassion on. The homeless guy in the corner. The boss who treats you poorly. The person, the, the, the friend who bitterly betrayed you. The husband who hasn't loved you, who hasn't pursued your heart the way he's supposed to for many years. Are there people in your life like this that you need to have compassion on? That you need to be willing, at great risk to yourself, to cross the street to meet their pain. Willing, at great risk of yourself, to wade into their brokenness and into their suffering. Because don't forget this. This story that Jesus just told about this is what it looks like. This is who your neighbor is and this is what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. Don't forget that this story was told because a man came to Jesus and asked him, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And this is a story that Jesus chooses to tell. To love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus said, my followers are going to love God and love people. And this is what that looks like. And he says to him at the end, you go and do likewise. And that is our charge for you and for me today. Is that we would look and see the places that God has put us in. In our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our church that we would understand the people that God has placed around us that are in need, that is who God has called us to go and to love. And listen, there's going to be all sorts of reasons why we can rationalize, okay, God, I can't really do this right now. Listen, drop those today. And just understand that God has placed you in those places for a purpose. God has put people in need in your life for a purpose, for you to go and engage, for you to love for you to treat the way that God has treated you. To extend grace and mercy when you were undeserving. And extend that same grace and mercy to those people God has placed around you. Let's pray.